Welcome everyone to our NCAA social series. I'm Andy Katz. In this edition of our COVID-19 social series, we're dealing with the mental health aspect of this virus. Pleased to be joined yet again by NCAA Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Brian Hainline, Dr. Claudia Reardon from the University of Wisconsin, who is a consulting sports psychiatrist for the university, Caroline Lee, who just completed her career at Southeastern Louisiana as a soccer player and also now is working with COVID-19 patients. So Caroline, I want to start with you. You are out there in the field. What are you seeing? Yes, so a lot of it kind of depends on the specific person and if they have any underlying illnesses and their age, but it's definitely something that we need to be taking seriously. Uh, you know, you don't, sometimes we don't even realize how bad it is until we see it firsthand, but I've just seen a lot of all these healthcare professionals rallying together and working together to keep everyone safe and healthy. And so it's definitely something that we need to be taking seriously and um, being cautious with, so. In what way are you helping these patients uh, as they recover from COVID-19? So I'm a rehab technician, so I work in the realm of rehab and therapy. And so a lot of times when we hear those words, we tend to think of injuries or something to do with sports, but uh, truly rehab is needed at all levels. Um, in our health. And so a lot of what we do is I work in a level two trauma hospital. And so every day I'm working with uh, patients that either are ill or they were in some sort of traumatic accident or they just had surgery and kind of just helping them get ready to go back to daily life outside of the hospital and regaining those skills and strengths in order to do day-to-day -day activities. And so that is the case even with um, these people who are suffering with COVID-19 right now. Of course, that really weakens you. And when you lay in a hospital bed, you know, some of my patients are in ICU for up to three weeks and that takes a huge toll out of your body and um, out of your strength and your wellness. And so just working with them and getting their bodies moving and helping them stand and walk again and kind of get that blood flow to prepare them for life after being in the hospital for so long. Yeah, Dr. Reardon, we're hearing so much of, and we're seeing obviously on television, you know, those that are even celebrities, have been able to get through this and they look you know, okay when they're at least on television and all that. We're not seeing this other side that Caroline's speaking of. What are you seeing um, in the mental health aspect of having to deal with COVID-19 that isn't being discussed as much in the public space? Yeah, you raise a very real concern and every day as a psychiatrist, I see the mental health fallout of COVID-19 in the athletes student-athletes, the non-athlete patients that I see. And so we're, you know, unfortunately seeing a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression. These things are common at baseline, but seemingly even more common and problematic now. Anxiety, of course, stems from, you know, anxiety about the virus itself, about what if I contract, what about, you know, contract it, what about my loved ones getting the illness, um, but also the, the fallout of the pandemic too, in terms of impact on sport for our student athletes, for sure, um, impact on academic progress, financial impacts, which are of course very real and concerning. 
in the form of depression, you know, suddenly people who are used to quite a lot of structure in their life, our student athletes, for example, are very, very structured in terms of how their time is managed. Um, and suddenly there's this great loss of structure. And as humans, we thrive on, on structure and routine. And a lot of us just don't have that now. So there's the loss of that. There's the loss of social connectedness which is just so very important for optimal uh, mental well-being as well, um, and so many other stressors and factors that I think are contributing to higher rates of depression too during this time. Dr. Hanlon, we, we've seen and we've talked about these issues at some form or fashion over the last month, and yet, uh, as Dr. Reardon is saying and Caroline, that there's now become even a cumulative effect as the weeks pile on. Uh, it becomes even almost more overwhelming. What are you seeing from what from individuals you're talking to at all levels of athletics and universities and colleges? I don't care what the division uh, that you have to deal with that are you know having to to sort of orchestrate and navigate this new normal. Yeah, so I'm seeing the same thing, and and I think the 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 most difficult part of all this was just this timeline of, well, when is this going to end? And is it ever going to end? And and so when you have that degree of uncertainty, you pile that on, on top of lack of structure and having your life taken away from you. And, and that really leads to even more anxiety and depression. But we're in this really interesting transition phase right now, because for the first time, we're possibly seeing a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. We don't know how long that, that tunnel is, but but even with the new guidelines that came out from the White House and moving into different phases and, and possibly applying that to sport, you know, it, it, it's something that gives the athletes uh, uh, something to hold on to. It, it, it re-energizes a, a sense of hope and, and sort of the physicality that, yes, I'm going to be back. So, so I'm also seeing this little bit of transition, and, and hopefully that's going to be a, a positive transition d depending on how things really play out. So, Carolyn and, and, and Dr. Reardon, I want to get your opinion on this because there's almost too much information out there and too many people are talking without knowing when the end date is, without knowing you know, what life could look like June, July, August, September. So, Caroline, first for you, as an athlete, soccer play the ball. We don't know what's going to happen. How would a fellow athlete, even some you played with from past season, how are they dealing with all this uncertainty about what their future is going to be. You know, I think there's a lot of disappointment among student athletes with seasons being cut short and um, championships being put on halt, which of course is very devastating. But I think that at the same time, so many of our student athletes have been so resilient and I'm proud of the positivity positivity that they've maintained and um, all that they're doing now off the court and off the field um, to prepare for when they come back. And so, of course, kind of as mentioned before, as student athletes, we're used to so much structure and having everything organized. And so now we're kind of a, in a season of unknown and uncertainty. Uh, but I think for the most part, a lot of our student athletes are doing a wonderful job at staying positive and staying fit and preparing themselves physically, emotionally, and mentally for when they will be able to start back up. Dr. Reardon? Yes. So um, you mentioned the uncertainty. And while our student athletes, for sure, are used to having a certain amount of structure and routine in their lives, 
they're also quite used to dealing with uncertainty, if you think about it, right, in terms of what the weather is going to be like on the day of your competition, what your opponent's going to do, if you're going to get a cold or some other mild illness before competition, you know, what the fans are going to say to you during the competition, these kinds of things. So actually compared to, you know, maybe 98% of the population, our, our athletes are fairly well positioned to, to deal with some of the, the unknowns here. At the same time, it's certainly not easy for our athletes and you know to have your sudden you know your season suddenly cut short is it is devastating it is a major loss I liken it to a, a, a grieving process really this sudden loss of this thing that was you know in so many cases so very important to you and whenever you're talking about a grieving process you know working through that pain and that suffering is so important in terms of having someone to talk that through with in terms of journaling or some other creative outlet um, so that it doesn't just stay inside of you and fester. Well, I, I want to delve a little deeper into this, Dr. Heinlein, and, and then the two of you can add on to this. There's even more to this uncertainty because you know we don't know, are they going to be on campus in the fall? Is it going to be online? Uh, you know, For the seniors, are some schools are honoring eligibility that you know, got their seasons taken away in the spring and some are not? And some you're waiting to find out if that's going to happen. So there's even more uncertainty within their eligibility, what's going to be there financial aid wise, whether or not they'll even be able to compete until, you know, August or September or January. Um, you know, how do you dig down deep to that when there's even less that they can sort of look at in terms of uh, right here in April? Right. So I think there's there's different layers to that. So so one layer is just how the athletes interact with one another and they, they really can sort of uh, count on one another just to for the camaraderie. And even though there's not that physical presence, the one thing that's great about uh, Caroline and her work on the Student Athlete Advisory Committee is, you know, and they're, they're the voice of, of, of our athletes, uh, the legitimate voice. They really have a forum where they can share with one another. So I think that helps to a degree. And then in terms of, you know, your eligibility. So even though the NCAA passed um, broad rules that, that, yes, the spring sport athletes, they can have another year of eligibility. But that happens at the institutional level, too. The NCAA just gives the permission for that. So it's very important for the athletes to understand what's happening at the institutional level. So and, and that's twofold. One is, well, are there going to be classes this fall? And, and, and so we don't know that. Yet we, we have sort of a general guidance for how that might happen. And the other is if there are those sorts of classes, what's the institutions, what's their uh, premise going to be as to and to whether they're going to honor the spring sport athletes and, and what they're going to do financially. So so the athlete has to really work at, at that level. And then I think there's a another layer. And even though this doesn't take away the uncertainty, it gives you a sense of purpose. The athletes, I think, as much as anyone else, they can really stand for social responsibility right now. And so they shouldn't be, you know, clamoring and rushing in to, to move too quickly to re-socialize and to get things back to normal. And, and, and I think that's where the, the, the athletes can, can be that very, very active voice. The, the SAC, the Student Athlete Advisory Committee members, are the, the leaders in that. And, and it's sort of like you're helping to shape what the future might be and taking away some of that. Uh, uncertainty by saying, well, if we do things right, we're much more likely to have a future than if we just do things wrong. And, and to Caroline's point of, of rehabilitation, and you know, you can use that metaphor for this, that it's almost like, you know, as a society, we just underwent a major, major illness or a major, major surgery. 
And in rehab, when you move back too quickly, all the gains that you made can be lost and you can be even in a worse position. And I think that metaphor holds true for what we're talking about with gradually re-socializing. And, and, and so we have to take it step by step. And, and, and I think the student athletes can be a, a leadership in that for that, that sort of ethical and, and, and social responsibility. And that's gonna help shape our future. Alan, uh, what are you hearing at the athletic level about how these athletes are communicating and, and navigating all this kind of, at times, mixed messages? I mean, some schools may open, some may not. And you know, they're just trying to find out, okay, what's going to happen for me, my teammates, my school, how it affects my family? Uh, what, what are you hearing at that granular level? So I think an incredible part about the time that we live in now is that we're so connected via social media which is great in a time like this where we are um, needing to social distance and be apart from one another. So kind of like Dr. Hainline had mentioned, we have such an incredible network of other student athletes that we talk with through student athlete advisory committee at the different levels, whether it be campus level, conference level, or national level. And so I think that it is hard because a lot of things are up to institutions. And so there might not be total consistency across the board, but there is a strong sense of communication amongst all of our student athletes. And I think everyone is just taking it day by day. Dr. Reardon, how concerned are you that there is no light switch here, that even when we get to that point where students can be back on campus, there can be competition, this is going to linger. I mean, there's going to be different sort of offshoots off of this that you as a, a psychiatrist may have to handle that it's not just, it just doesn't stop once things get back even to a new normal or normalcy. Um, how concerned are you about that, that phase? Yeah, well, the, and that raises the issue again of uncertainty. And, you know, fortunately, as I say, our athletes are you know reasonably equipped to deal with that. But it is so difficult as you're thinking about, my goodness, how do I plan my training? How do I plan my periodization in this sport when I actually don't know what event I'm ultimately training for next? So I think in some ways it can be helpful to take a bit shorter term perspective in terms of setting goals for athletic um, accomplishment, for academic pursuits for when you're going to be able to look for your post-collegiate job, for example. So just sort of shifting how far out we're used to looking and, and goal setting for. Carolyn, how long did it take, you think, for people to really grasp the severity here? Oh, gosh, it's hard to say because I think that sometimes it seems like people still aren't taking it as seriously as they should. But I think when we start to have all these statistics arise and we study them and that's when we see how devastating this virus is and how seriously we need to take it. And so I think I've seen a lot of people in my generation and young student athletes that are taking it seriously while everybody may not. I think that, you know, people for the most part now are taking it seriously and taking um, the precautionary measures that um, they need to and are being asked to take. Dr. Hainline, since you took uh, your spot, I believe around 2013, how have you seen the issue of mental health evolve to where it is today in dealing with student athletes? Well, it's evolved considerably. I, I still remember the, the very first uh, meeting, official meeting I had as chief medical officer was with the student athlete advisory committee members. So uh, Caroline, you weren't there, but uh, you were probably in grade school or high school then. But, um, you know, they, I remember distinctly from Division One, Division Two, and Division Three, 
the leadership all said to me from the student athletes, Dr. Hainline, look, we get concussion. Can you please make mental health your priority? So we listened to the athletes. And, and so what happened over time is we developed these best practices document that were endorsed by uh, 25 of the leading uh, authorities in the country, including like with Dr. Reardon's organization, the American Psychiatric Association, and, and, and a whole bunch of other groups. And so we actually laid out based on all the evidence, four core premises of how to really carry out mental health best practices on all 1,100 campuses across the country. But then it went even one step further. The, the National Student Athlete Advisory Committee leadership, they took this and they socialized it widely across all of the student athletes. And then in 2019, the NCA membership adopted the mental health best practices as a legislation. So it was legislated and it stated that every school must have in place mental health practices consistent with this document. And then it went to a whole other level that Dr. Reardon and I were involved in together. The International Olympic Committee reached out to both of us and, and they asked if we would co-chair the, the first ever uh, International Olympic Committee uh, consensus meeting on mental health and elite athletes. So we had that meeting, it led to publications. And this summer, fingers crossed, it looks like there's going to be uh, the first ever screening tool, the sports mental health assessment tool, devoted just for athletes. Because athletes have concerns and, and issues that, you know, they're, they're human beings. So, you know, they, they have the, many of the same issues that other, other people do, but they have athlete-specific issues. And so this screening tool takes that into account. So when you think of that first meeting in 2013, and you flash forward to where we are today, the, the progress has been phenomenal. And, and I think perhaps one of the most important things is that the stigma is going away. So it's now like, you know, if, if you really wanna be a great athlete, well, you can't ignore an ankle sprain, but you can't ignore also anxiety or mental health symptoms. And so, you know, we, we've normalized it over time. The stigma is reducing and, and, and we're, what the ultimate goal is to make you know, taking care of mental health symptoms and disorders as easy as taking care of an ankle sprain. So Dr. Reardon, I want you to pick up on that because we've seen a lot of professional athletes, college athletes, high school athletes that have come forth and shared their stories of anxiety and depression, uh, something we didn't see five years ago, 10 years ago, or anything like that. Um, how much has that sort of helped, and I say that helped in the way of, of your practice of, you know, making sure that it's okay to talk about it there shouldn't be a stigma uh, if you come forward. Athletes who have come forward and spoken about their own sufferings have been just instrumental in helping to break the stigma. I thank you for doing that, those of you who have, because it helps normalize you know, the fact that mental health symptoms and disorders are common and distressing, and they cause a lot of dysfunction, and they're imminently treatable, right? So that if we can get beyond the stigma and actually reach out for help, we can get better. As well, I think there's increasing realization among all members of the athlete entourage, from the sports medicine physician to the coach to the athletic trainer, that if mental health symptoms and disorders go untreated, that has a real and negative impact on sport performance. So that we know if you're anxious or depressed or you're not sleeping well, you are far more likely on average to get injured, which of course obviously has a very dire impact on sport performance. And Caroline, how much have you seen um, an acceptance at the you know student athlete level, um, where if you're dealing with something, 
a whole range of issues, no matter what they are, that it's okay, you know, talk about it, share it, and that should not be looked at in any negative light. I think as Dr. Reardon has mentioned that these professional athletes that have come forward with their mental health struggles has really just opened up the door for other, even younger athletes to do the same. And so I think that's been instrumental in breaking that stigma within athletics. And it's one of those things where you only need one person to create that vulnerability. So if we can have a coach or a teammate or somebody in athletic administration come forward and be vulnerable, maybe with their own struggles, that will really encourage those student athletes to do the same as well. And so I think that that's an area in which we've been doing a lot better within college athletics, but it's always something that we can be working on and getting better at. So what drove you to go into this field? It has just always been on my heart to serve people through medicine, and that's something that I've always wanted to do. And so, yes. Well, but now that you're in it, uh, how much has it, you know, increased your passion, or you know, could, it could go either way when you're in the middle of a pandemic. So, how much has it uh, affected your passion for it? Right. So, obviously, working in healthcare in this time during this pandemic and crisis, of course, can be very stressful or overwhelming or nerve wracking. But at the same time, it's just kind of reassured to me that this is what I want to do with my life and this is what I'm passionate about. And I want to do this. I want to be able to help others when they're sick and they're ill. And so, for me personally, um, as tragic and horrifying as this pandemic is, it's just taught me a lot about myself and just reassured to me that this is the field that I need to be working in, that I need to be serving in. And it's been, um, I don't want to say good experience, because obviously this is something that I hope we never experience um, anytime soon or ever again, but it's just kind of helped me understand that this is exactly where I need to be and what I'm called to do. And how are you holding up? Very well. So far, so good. All healthy. That's well, good to hear. Uh, Dr. Reardon, um, you know, the other aspect that I'm curious that, that we've got this isolation that Dr. Hamline and I talked about over the last month is, you know, there are some athletes that are rehabbing on campus that didn't go home. Um, international athletes that chose not to go back to their host country or their home country. Uh, and there's an isolation aspect to that. And we've seen, I've seen stories around the country, regardless of sport, that they're kind of feeling almost just sort of, you know, in these trapped in their either their apartment, their dorm room, or wherever they're staying, uh, and in these sort of ghost town campuses, and that's a whole other aspect. They're not with their families like a lot of us. They're not with a relative or a close friend. They're sort of almost on their own. How have you had to advise, or would you advise those those student athletes? Yeah, it's such a great question. And I tell you, of the student athletes who I'm meeting with by video appointments now um, every day, there are those who are still on campus um, for whatever reason. In a lot of cases, it's because there is no way for them to get home, whether that be, you know, their their home country is not the United States or otherwise. Um, and they, they are struggling in a lot of ways, including that sense of it feels like everyone else has gone home and they're, you know, safe and protected in their warm, secure home and with their family, and I'm the only one left here, even though it's not true, but there's still that sense, that perception um, that they have, and that obviously contributes to feelings of just isolation, loneliness, um, and so it's so important 
in those cases to do what we can to maintain that social connectedness um, so that, you know, yes, we're physically separating, but not socially separating from people. And then, you know, on the other side of the coin is my student athletes who are back home with their families, except they're not at all used to being home with their families. You know, it's the senior about to graduate. And by the way, now I'm under my parents' roof again and subject uh, to their rules. And it's, you know, yes, it's it's fine and nice to have the love and comfort of home if they have that. Certainly not everyone does, um, but, you know, maybe a little too close for, for comfort too. Um, and, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't sort of comment on those who have gone back home, but maybe from lower socioeconomic circumstances and, and don't have, you know, that safe, supported, well-resourced home environment. So, you know, I've, I've heard from a number of student athletes who, while on campus, they've got, you know, access to the food that they need right? To maintain their 300 pound, you know, body and all the weight training and other exercise they're, that they're doing. But now back home, you know, these social determinants of health, the very basic things, food, housing, etc., you know, can't even be guaranteed. So that's a stressor sort of in and of itself, too. So Dr. Ritter, I, I just want to follow up on one other aspect that you just mentioned. Um, my wife is a therapist. My mother was a clinical social worker. And I know how often and how important it is face-to-face -face and having to adjust now using telehealth. I mean, how has your practice changed in now having to do everything essentially virtually uh, without being able to read, you know, body language and, uh, you know, just everything that you would normally do in a session that you can't uh, during this uh, lockdown? Well, I'll tell you, wonderfully, and I'm grateful for this every day, my practice feels like it's actually changed surprisingly little. So, I mean, I've not had to cancel a single patient appointment since the pandemic started, and we really didn't have to miss a beat in terms of moving to um, video-based appointments, telepsychiatry appointments. And so, um, you know, there are some patients for whom the technology isn't available to do the video appointments, but in the, those cases, I've been able to meet with them by phone. Um, and in, in most of the cases as well, they're um, um, athlete patients who I've had an ongoing relationship with. So even if I can't see their face because it's a phone appointment, I can picture them. I know what they look like. I've seen them for several times. And then with the video appointments, of course, I can see them. I can see, you know, body language and I can always um, hear the tones of voice, too. There are certain aspects of practice um, that, well, you know, mental health is quite conducive to video and phone appointments aren't quite as optimal, right? So if I'm pre prescribing a medication to a patient that has the potential to raise blood pressure, and I really would like to be monitoring that, maybe it raises pulse. That's a very relevant, you know, biologic parameter for an athlete. Um, and it's, it's just harder, obviously, if I can't, you know, do that in my office. But we get creative about these things. So I've had patients buy home, you know, blood pressure pulse monitors, and they can check them while I'm watching them, you know, through the video screen, uh, which has been helpful. All that said, I do look forward to the day when I can see them all in person again. So Dr. Hainline, you have been optimistic. I appreciate that. Um, you know, but how do you balance here going forward? And it is only April. So I want to make sure everyone knows that we have time. But optimism versus, you know, that dose of real, realism where we are right now, uh, but also to preach patience, sort of balancing all three of those pillars uh, as student-athletes are trying to gather the right information and trying to just make sure that they can 
be okay as they wait to see what's going to happen next? So my optimism uh, became a little more grounded um, last week, Andy, when, when the White House uh, came out with uh, these guidelines, so the, really the national guidelines on opening up America again. And even though there have been sort of different narratives going on, I think if we stay grounded to this document, it, it's really so well done because it, it provides parameters for how we can gradually start to re-socialize in society. And we're going to be using that document as the basis for re-socializing in sport as well. And so if we if we begin to go out and, and, and we follow, you know, the, the, the guidelines and in phase one, it, it's just a, a small incremental step. But if it's successful, meaning that from a gating point of view that you continue to have a decrease in infection rate, well, then we can move in into phase two. And so. The, the fact that this was grounded so much in science and, and, and it just makes so much sense. And, and it also, it, it creates another expectation. And if that expectation is met, there's even more reason to be optimistic. And that's the expectation that we have a national surveillance system. So right now we have an influenza surveillance system, but it's basically inactive in the summertime. So we have to have a, a, a surveillance system that, that is present at a national level, really at the level of monitoring the potential for bioterrorism. I mean, that's really the state of readiness we should be in as a country anyway. So if that's developed, and then we have the testing in place and that it's validated. So the serological testing for immunity and the rapid diagnostic testing, if all of that is worked out, you can actually then start to imagine how we truly can not only re-socialize, but if there's a setback, rather than going into these measures such as social distancing, stay at home, we're actually in a much better place where we can isolate, we can test, we can manage, and we can uh, prevent further spread. So, so it really is a challenge, I think, for society to say, look at these guidelines, follow them, for our country to develop the infrastructure to support them, and then state by state to do the right thing. And so that's a lot of ifs, um, but the blueprint is there. And I think if we as a society say, look, we have to get this right, because if we don't get it right, the consequences are, are, are just too far reaching to, to go back again. So, um, so I'm, my optimism is, is grounded in the fact that we actually have a blueprint for recovery. And Dr. Reardon, how are you balancing it with your patients, basically, of where we are now, what you hope will happen, uh, and also preaching patience? Right. Yeah, that's a fine line, right? Because hopefulness is such an important psychological variable for our patients. We know if you lose hope for your future, for the world's future, that is that's a dire state uh, to be in. So, you know, maintaining hope and optimism. Um, you know, one way we do that frequently is through gratitude practices. So reminding ourselves that, yes, there is a lot dire going on right now. But what do we have for which we can be thankful? Maybe it's my own health currently. Maybe I'm thankful that I came into this pandemic, at, you know, as a very physically healthy person, or maybe it's that I'm a student athlete who had this built-in social support system of my teammates and my coaches that we know, sadly, a lot of people in the world don't have. So while you can't necessarily be, you know, meeting with these people in person, there can be that social connectedness um, virtually. 
so gratitude for all of those variables, I think, um, is important. And then balancing that with, you know, um, not being unreasonably hopeful that, you know, the world's going to open up tomorrow and we have to be prepared and patient and take a measured approach to setting those short term goals until, lo and behold, we find ourselves at the point where we can reintegrate. Carolyn, I want to give you the last word. You're on the front lines there doing wonderful work. Uh, you were able to complete your career. Uh, a lot of athletes obviously either couldn't do that in the winter, spring. They don't know what's going to happen in the fall. Um, we know, though, students need to be on campus to have sports. So chicken and egg, we need we need this to happen. Um, one, one can't happen without the other. What's your advice to other student athletes as they deal with the realities of this moment, of the hope that things are going to get better sooner than later, uh, but also mix in all of that, please, be patient. Yeah, I think what I would tell these student athletes is that, you know, it's okay to grieve. This is a hard time. Devastating things are happening. You know, graduation ceremonies are getting canceled. Seasons are ending short. People are having to postpone their weddings. And it's totally normal to feel disappointed or devastated by what's going on. And grieving and working through those emotions is part of the process of emotional healing. And so it's very necessary. And there's nothing wrong with being upset with what's going on. But also just reminding them that these measures that have been taken to moving to online school, to social distancing, to ending sports, putting them on hold for right now, um, just reminding them that while it's completely necessary, it's also temporary. And so soon enough, we will get back to um, normalcy and back to sports. But just knowing that through all of this, you know, as an association, as student athletes, this is about more than just sports. And so knowing that it's okay to be upset, it's okay to be sad and to grieve, but know that this is necessary, but also temporary. Well, Caroline, we really appreciate you taking the time from your incredibly busy schedule. As I said, you're doing wonderful work, uh, and we're all so appreciative of everything that you're doing after your exceptional career at Southeastern Louisiana playing soccer. Uh, Dr. Claudia Reardon from the University of Wisconsin, thank you so much for everything that you shed light on this subject as well and all the work that you're doing in Madison. And Dr. Brian Hainline, our chief medical officer at the NCAA, thanks for everything that you're doing as well. Of course, you can go to ncaa.org slash COVID-19 for more information on our social series. We'll continue this throughout the course of the spring. Thanks for watching, everyone.